Okay, Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, for Teresa. You may sit down. Uh, thank you, Teresa. I am intentionally off-center here, just so you know, because there's a squeaky spot right here that we discovered in the first service, and it's so distracting to everybody. I have been told, though I don't know if this is verifiable, I don't know if it's possibly verifiable, but I've often heard that the single most difficult thing to do in sports is to hit a baseball thrown by a professional pitcher. Now, I'll tell you, I wish I could be more diverse in my illustrations, not just sports, but I'm pretty one-dimensional. So you don't get a lot of art illustrations and music illustrations from me, but this is what I got, okay? So, but it's not surprising that hitting a baseball would be so difficult. If In a major league situation, the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches from home plate. The, the pitchers are usually about 6, 6, 6, 5. So they're releasing about 52 feet from home plate. The ball is spinning. It's, it's moving up and down or right and left, depending on what kind of pitch it is and the skill of the pitcher. It's moving upwards of, of 100 miles an hour. And you're then trying to hit the ball with a stick that's narrower than the ball. You've got a fraction of a second to decide, should I swing or not? Where's it going to be in the zone? And what's the movement on the ball? And all of that comes together. And it's really remarkable that anybody ever hits a baseball ever. It is at least one of the most difficult things to do in sports. And even the elementary version of that, hitting a baseball of any kind, is difficult. We had a ball family growing up because, like I said, I'm pretty one-dimensional. And um, so all of our kids played ball, a different kind of ball, this kind of ball, that kind of ball. And so we wanted to teach them all to hit a baseball, which you begin with a wiffle ball bat and wiffle ball, which is plastic. You know, a yellow plastic wiffle ball bat and a white wiffle ball. And the way at least we taught them to hit a ball, because it is difficult, it's, a, it's something that you don't, it's just not natural to 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 do it well, I would get behind them and Carmen would pitch and I would say, okay, just, I want you to stand on my feet. So they're, you're, you're, your right foot here, my left foot here, I'm behind them. When they're, so they're so young that they wouldn't even remember this now. And so, and then you kind of get, you hunch over them and make sure they're right-handed, their left hand, their left hand's on bottom, right hand's on top. Put your hand over their hand. And it's really awkward if you're trying to do it, help them, but you, then you, then mom pitches, and then we step and swing, step and swing. Um, that's kind of how we tried to teach our kids to hit. Now, none of them play Major League Baseball, so maybe it wasn't very good. But at first, there's resistance because it's uncertain. Like, am I going to fall? What's happening as dad moves here? But then it moves to the more of a phase of like what you might call the dead weight phase. Like, well, I'm not going to fall, but I don't, I'm just here, right? And then... Moving on to like an awkward phase where like, okay, I'm willing to do this, but it's pretty clumsy. Like, okay, step and 
then oh, stepping, kind of swinging. And then they see what's happening, and then you move into a willingness phase. Like, okay, I get what's going on here. I'm, I want to do this. And finally, you might get into the participation phase where I'm doing this with you. Right? And it gets a lot easier for the parent at that, that point. And occasionally at that point, you will hit the ball. And then there's a lot of you know, intrinsic motivation that happens. Uh, but in this phase, what's happening is this child is mapping his or her movement onto mine. So the mechanics of my swing, if you will, are, you know, it's, it's awkward, but it's, here's step. The mechanics of my swing are trying to, becoming the mechanics of his swing or her swing. And then they want to do the same movement. Essentially, my swing becomes their swing. And then I can step away. And they can continue that swing, mimicking my swing. It's it's their swing by themselves. And then they're using my swing without me. And then over time, what happens is they grow, and they're not comfortable with that. So they, you know, depending on where they want to have their hands high, low, or where they're, how they want to open their hips or their feet to start out, they, they customize it to themselves. But it's always the same mechanics of the swing. It's the same mechanics of the swing, essentially, that dad taught them. It's really the same mechanics of any swing in baseball. But they adjust for themselves, and they map the, that same swing onto their situation. So they learn to map their movement onto mine, and then they adjust. And they make adjustments over time, and over time they may forget that learning process and have to come back to it, uh, or they get a little rusty. Even Major League Baseball players get a little rusty in their swing. That's why we have spring training. And if you're a baseball fan, you know that this year spring training got cut short because there was a lockout and an argument between the union and the players' reps and all that kind of stuff. And the beginning of the season was a record poor hitting in Major League Baseball, record number of strikeouts. Because spring training was cut short because they, even the best, got rusty on the movement mechanics of their own swing. One of the gifts, one of the gifts of the Psalms for the people of God can, is that they can function as thoughtful, emotional, soul movement onto which we are invited and called and can map our own thoughts and emotions and soul. The Psalms themselves are a movement of thought, emotion, and soul that we're called to to map our thoughts, emotions, and soul onto. And it happens over and over and over again. It might start out awkward, right? We may start out resisting it uh, or being very awkward or unwilling to do it. And willingness and participation takes time. And then, But then we learn to do it. But then even then we can get rusty again and have to come back to it. That's part of the reason we focus on the Psalms so often here. A lot of times in the summer we come back and we look at the Psalms because we want our souls to be wise, We want our souls to be wise. And you will notice as we walk through the Psalms, a lot of these Psalms, are the people are miserable. They're in distress, and they're weakened, and they need help. At least two-thirds, or two-thirds, at least uh, 40%, two-fifths of the Psalms are like that, right? The other benefit of that is that that teaches us something that American Christianity is allergic to, which is this. It's okay to not have it together and to be messy and to be weak and to need God's grace and to need each other and to hold on to each other and have all kinds of problems and move forward. That is the normal way of being. In fact, in the songbook God gives us to sing, that's the case in 60 of the 150 psalms at least. So we want to come back to that. Now, it's hard. We often talk as a worship 
music team, like, why do we are not the songs we sing, why aren't they like that? The truth is, there's not, those songs aren't out there. It's really hard to find that many lament psalms, songs. And if you did, you might think, is everybody depressed here? What's going on, right? I don't know, but the psalms, people are full of discouragement and despair, and they're always fighting, and they're always fighting in community. And that's part of the reason we come to the psalms over and over again. Psalm 42 and 43 is what we're looking at. You may remember last week I said they were originally one poem or one psalm. Sometime they got, they got separated out. Uh, the psalmist is experiencing in Psalm 42 and 43 what some call spiritual depression. It's, it's not called that in the psalm, but that's sort of a diagnosis some people make, uh, saying, well, this person, he is experiencing this discouragement and despair that comes from a sense of alienation from God. He's cut off from corporate worship. He feels iso- he's isolated from other people, and he has some enemy who is mocking him and pursuing him, unknown to us, but definitely known to him. And so sometimes that's called spiritual depression. It's a discouragement, a sense of alienation and being far from God that comes with all of that. And what does he do? We saw last week, we begin to see last week that he's honest with God and he speaks forcefully to himself. The two repeated phrases in Psalm 42 are also repeated at the end of Psalm 43. In Psalm 42, 5, 42, 11, and 43, 5, this is the psalmist talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So he is speaking to himself instead of listening, calling to mind the things he learns in the light when he's in the dark. And we said, I wrote a, read a quote from this book last week, Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones, where Jones, who was a doctor turned pastor in Britain after the Second World War, says this, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk instead of talking to ourselves. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So I don't know if he's exaggerating for the point of sake of emphasis or what, but he's drawing attention to this reality. That by the power of the Spirit in Christ, we have the ability and authority to exercise some power over the inter- our internal state and to talk to ourselves and to direct ourselves, bringing to mind the, the truth of God, bring it to bear on our soul. It's hard, it's messy, it's chaotic, just like life. Just like life. And we kind of have to customize this. And I, didn't, I should have said this last week. I didn't say it. Um, you, you're going to have your own swing. Right? But the mechanics are going to be the same. But it's going to be customized to you. I'm going to preach like I would talk to myself. Taylor's going to preach like he would talk to himself. Lloyd-Jones is going to write like he would talk to himself. You're going to be different. That's fine. We're going to, it's all going to look different, right, with different backgrounds and contexts and temperament. You, you're going to look like you're going to look, but the important thing is that we're actually bringing the Word of God to bear on our life, where we actually and really are, in the light and in the darkness. That's the critical thing for our formation. Um, 
so that we have a, we're, we're bringing this, we're being shaped in the light so that when the darkness sets in and it's hard to see, it's not so hard to find those paths. So we're, we're being shaped in the light so we have a storehouse to draw from when we, when we feel like our world's falling apart and there's almost nothing we can hold on to. We know a few things to hold on to and then bring to bear forcefully on our own soul. So the question might be, for you, are you in a place of distress right now? If the answer is no, you say, I'm actually, thankfully, not in a place of distress right now, then we would say, okay, right now, let's let this psalm shape us and shape our soul so that inevitably, when distress comes, it's not so hard to find those pathways or those movements, those, those mechanics, those soul movements. If you are in distress right now, if you are in distress right now, let's let this actually lead us to the Lord in the way that it's showing us. There are, uh, you know, I, I've wasted so much time in my own life um, just wallowing in distress without actually bringing it to God. You know, and I'm, I can assess it, I can write about it, I can journal about it, which sometimes my journaling is just complaining to myself, right? It's not actually spiritual, it's just like, I'll write it with precision, you know? Um, and having the opportunity to do this now for over 30 years with lots of people in lots of different contexts, I know that a lot of people, including maybe even some in this room, maybe even right now, like we're in distress and we chase it around in our own minds so long and we may even pray about it, which is basically just complaining and actually never bringing it to God, right? Um, we have to do that business and also to beware of false comforts that we, we all have sort of like these inclinations. Instead of bringing this distress to the Lord, it's much easier to watch another episode of Stranger Things or to eat a little bit more or drink a little bit more alcohol. It's much easier to turn on another game or to, to work a little bit harder, to do something. It's easier to distract. All of those things might be fine in and of themselves in isolation, but use as a, as a way of eliminating our distress when God has given us a pathway, they can become, they can get twisted. In fact, I think a lot of, probably a lot of addiction is driven, I would think, fueled by trying to cope with distress apart from the soul mechanics God provides. That's a long entrance intro to this psalm and really all psalms. Soul mechanics that we're trying to map our affections onto in the light and in the dark. The flavor of Psalm 42 was defiance. The, soul is like the, the psalmist is defying his own soul, defying the enemy. The flavor of Psalm 43 seems to be a little bit more hopeful. So I want to explore these, move, these soul movements in Psalm 43 and see if we can't map our own soul onto them. Okay? The first movement is we look outside ourselves. We look outside ourselves. Verse 1, vindicate me, O God. And defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. An ungodly people literally is a people without covenant love. And a people devoid of grace. Uh, it's the word, uh, it's the non-hesed people. That's the covenant love word in Hebrew. Uh, it could be what the New Testament calls the world. Right? The world in the New Testament might be described as the the persons and systems and values and ideals that operate apart from the redemptive love of Jesus. That's the world. 
the persons, systems, values, ideals that operate apart from the redemptive love of Jesus. That's not a technical definition. There's probably a better theological definition, but that's a thumbnail. Uh, and I would take the deceitful and unjust man here to be representative of that particular group. Maybe he had somebody in mind. I don't know. We don't know who, who he's talking about. But there are forces in his world that wanted to harm him and prevent him from loving, serving, and following Yahweh. And we might say that there are forces in this world that do not want us to love, honor, serve, and follow Jesus. And one of the things the New Testament makes much more clear about these forces is that there's something behind them or or underneath them. A, A uniquely Christian perspective is to see what Paul says in Ephesians 6, maybe these are familiar words to you, he writes, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood first, right? (laughs) But against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What this is teaching us is that behind the persons and the systems and the ideas and the values that do not want us to love, worship, and follow Jesus, there's something spiritual. Right? There's a demonic, satanic influence that operates in this world, often not obvious. That's why it's powerful. Right? That's a uniquely biblical insight. Now, it doesn't make things easier. It just makes them more clear. In Psalm 42, he had spoken to his own soul. That's really good. He'd been honest with God. He poured out his complaint. That, that can be fine. But he hasn't done one thing that he does in Psalm 43.1. Psalm 43.1, he does something for the first time. I don't know why it takes so long in this poem to do this, but he asks for help. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause and deliver me. That's the first time he actually asked God to do anything in this poem. He asks for help. He doesn't ask for vengeance. Kill him, Lord. Sometimes the Psalms are kind of like that, but he's not doing that here. Uh, And he doesn't give God the exact path or options for him to walk down. Lord, here's what I want you to do. A, B, and C, or A and C, or just B, but do one of these things. He's like, just rescue me. Just rescue me. And some of you know, I know, like, when you have trouble with a child, when the marriage is difficult, when the finances are super thin and evaporating quickly, when we have... You know, something we just don't know what to do that keeps us up at night, that wakes us up in the middle of the night when we have a, a mess at work, when we're in a hard counseling situation, whether that's informal with a friend or maybe you're in a job where you have to give some counsel and direction, you don't know what to do. I know that the temptation is to come before the Lord and give him a range of options within which he must operate. Here's what I want you to do with my child. Here's what I want you to do with my spouse. Here's what I want you to do with my money. Here's what I want you to do. It's X, Y, and Z, or X, Y, or Z. I just want to, there's a place for giving our desires to the Lord. But what the psalmist does here is he just says, Lord, help me. Help me. Help me. And if you're in a place of distress today, and I've actually not move to that place, I would encourage you not to let the sun go down on today without saying to the Lord, getting alone and saying, Lord, I'm not going to give you parameters. Just help me. Help me. He's looking outside himself. Lord, help me. So this is, uh, 
It is he is talking to his own soul. He's going to say again, why so downcast on my soul? So he's talking to himself, but he's looking outside of himself. So talking to yourself, but looking outside of yourself. This isn't some program of, you know, self-improvement with positive self-talk. If you remember the old skit from Saturday Night Live with Al Franken, Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. Remember this? Where Stuart Smalley looks in the mirror. He, gives, he says some encouraging things. He looks in the mirror and says, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Okay. There may be some benefit to that. It's kind of weird. But there might be some benefit to that. And I think positive self-talk is a good thing. But that's not what's happening here. This is him looking to his soul and saying, soul, we're going to look outside ourselves because the answer is not right in here. No matter how many times I chase it around the block, no matter how many times I journal about it, how many times I complain about it, how many times I talk to somebody else about it, the answer is not in here. It's out there. I'm going to look outside of myself. That's the first movement. Second, we declare what we do have. Verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There's a progression here of how the psalmist is describing God. In Psalm 42.1, God's absent. <laughs> In Psalm 42.9, he's called a rock, like, oh, a source of strength. So he goes like, oh, God is not at present. Like, you know what? God, God, is a, God can help me. He can make me strong. But here he's called a refuge. God is a refuge, a fortress. He doesn't give a refuge. He is a refuge. One into whom I run. That's what a refuge is. It's the difference between seeing God as a help and God as a home. Of bringing sort of God into our distresses, like, hey, Lord, would you come and help this? I need you to drop in and help this. And bringing all of this mess before God and saying, here it is, it's all of it, and you're with me right here and in this. And nothing has come into this room, Lord, except what you have in your mysterious providence allowed in. And there's a, a gut honesty here. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? I mean, it really feels, Lord, like you've rejected me. Now, do you know that you have the freedom to communicate this way to the Lord? He, he feels like he's been rejected. So he's like, why have you rejected me? Some of you know Randy White. Randy was our former assistant pastor uh, before Taylor, and then Randy retired, and then Randy unretired, and now he's helping at Living Streams quite often. He's around here sometimes. Years ago, Randy said something to me that was really good. I've never forgotten it, and it's kind of worked its way into some of the conversations here. We had a conversation. He's like, I feel like you just gave me 95%. I need the last 5%. I need, are you not saying something because of decorum or you think I'll, you'll hurt my feelings? I need the last 5%. That was so freeing. This is the last 5% the psalmist is giving to the Lord. Why have you rejected me? It feels like you've rejected me. Now, if, you're, if you've been in that spot, if you are in that spot with the Lord, Feel free to articulate it. I want to encourage you to articulate it. It's, like, it's not like he doesn't know we're thinking this already anyway. This is good for us to get out there. In a respectful way, sure, but like, Lord, you're my refuge. Why does it seem like you've rejected me or, or forgotten me or don't care or unaware of me? Why is that? 
And then I, I'm not quite sure about the, this, the rest of this verse. Okay? So I'm, I'm going to make an, a, a supposition. Right? I think something happened here based on my own experience of how my heart goes and how this psalm unfolds. And, I, you know, the psalms are written probably over time. We, the doctrine of biblical inspiration doesn't mean like the, the writers of Scripture are like hearing God's voice from heaven and just writing in some automatic way. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration, which God uses ordinary means like creative psalmists and their situations in life by which they're writing things and carried along by the Spirit uh, and writing things that become inscripturated text. So this psalm could have been written over a period of hours or days or, or months as he's working through all of this stuff. But I wonder if he goes from saying something like, Lord, if you're my refuge... Why do I have to go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I thought you were my refuge. If you're a refuge, why do I have to go about mourning to, about, about, why do I have to go around mourning because of oppression? I wonder if he moved from that to saying, Lord, if you're my refuge, why do I have to go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Hmm, wait, maybe I don't have to do this after all. You, you are my refuge. Hmm. And I think that's, my hunch is that's where his soul gets. That's where you guys, if, if you've wrestled through things with the Lord, that's where we get. We're complaining, we're complaining, we're complaining, but we declare, oh, God is a refuge to us, and we start to complain again, and after a while we're saying, wait, actually, he is a refuge. Maybe this opposition isn't quite so bad and so big as I think, because God is a refuge. Number three. We can, so after we declare what we do have, we confess what we do not have. And these are dynamics. They don't have to happen in order. I'm just, this is an artificial structure for, I'm giving you for the psalm, right? Verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Send out your light and your truth. Have you ever been like in the backyard talking with somebody, with some friends, maybe around a bonfire or something? It's early evening. It's kind of dusk, and you talk and talk and talk and talk, and you're winding down the evening, and you stop talking and look around and say, well, it really got dark cool, you know, okay, it got dark. It got dark and you were unaware because you were otherwise occupied with something and when you were doing something else, the darkness descended and you didn't know until you tried to get up and look where you were going and said, oh, it's really dark. It got dark and I was unaware that I was in darkness. I think this is what the psalmist is saying. Send out your light and your truth. He's saying, look, I see enough to know that I can't see. I know enough to know that I don't know what I need to know. Lord, I'm just seeing so little, but I see enough to know that you've got light and truth. Give me more. Give me more. And that is a beautiful point to get to. Because before that, we just kind of assume we know everything. I've got enough light. I've got enough knowledge. I've got everything I need. Lord, just help me. And the psalmist is like, I don't know. I don't know. I am very limited, and I need your light and your truth. Send them out to help me. That is a good point to get in, the song, in, in your own heart. Now, I prefer that in my distress, I do that at the beginning. But I'm as dull as this psalmist most of the time. It took two-thirds of the way through the second psalm, but he got there, and he got there. Uh, maybe you can't start there. Maybe you have to be a little bit wise in your own eyes first and get, the distress has to set in a little bit. I don't know. 
Um, for the psalmist here, this light and truth would get him back to physical Zion. He wants to go back to or Jerusalem, also called Zion. He wants to get to Jerusalem, remember, to, to be with the corporate worship of the people of God. But in the Old Testament, also there's this value of these past design, not just physically, but in your heart. We, we did it in the call to worship. Ben led us through it. Psalm 84, 5, I put it in your insert. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Blessed are the people who want to travel to you, to want to have in their heart the desire to be with you in your, at, at your temple, this symbolic place of your presence, of your physical presence. And even that would be a, a good thing. In that time, God um, revealed his presence in one geographical location the temple in Jerusalem. And it was a blessing to desire to be there. In John 14, 18, Jesus says to his disciples, guys, I am going away, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then a few days later, a few weeks later at Pentecost, from the right hand of the Father, Jesus sends his Spirit into the lives of his people. And the Spirit becomes, then takes on the name of the Spirit of Christ. He's not called the Spirit of Christ before that. The Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in God's people. Uh, in the Old Testament, the person was blessed if he, in his heart, wanted to go to the Lord. The New Testament teaches us that that's a two-way highway. And that we are not just going to the Lord anymore at a physical place. But actually the Lord comes to us. And you could say he does actually come and express himself in a physical place. In your seat. The seat you're sitting in right now. In your own life. In your own body. This is where the spirit of the living God dwells. So we confess we don't have enough light to see that. We he said, Lord, send out your light and your truth. How does the Lord respond to a plea? Lord, give me more of your light and more of your truth. What's he going to say? No, I don't think so. I don't think you need that. You're not ready for that yet. No, that's a, that's a response the Lord always says. Yes, that's, I'm happy to give that. I'm happy to give that. So we look outside ourselves, declare what we do have, confess what, what we don't have, and then rest in God's way of provision. We rest in the provision God has made. Verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with a lyre, O God my God. The lyre is like a stringed instrument. He was a musician. The altar. This is super far from us culturally. I know that every time I talk about the Old Testament sacrificial system, eyes glaze over. We're like, I don't know what this means. They're sacrificing animals. That seems bad. Pete is mad, right? So, um, yeah, a long time ago, different culture, right? But, just trust me for a second. This was the way in that time that God communicated to his people forgiveness, atonement for their sin, embrace of them. He communicated his covenant love through the sacrificial system. It was an expression of his covenant love. And when the psalmist thinks about God's provision, it seems like his heart revives. Like, oh, God, my exceeding joy. 
So he goes from being downcast and despairing and saying, you've forgotten me to say, you're my exceeding joy. And the, inter- and the interim is like talk, thinking about the altar, God's provision of atonement, embrace, forgiveness, his covenant love. The altar in, in the sacrificial system was something you did over and over and over again in that time because it was pointing forward to something that had not come yet. Because sin was happening all the time, all this sacrificial system kept going, pointing forward to something. If you've been here long enough, you know that every sermon eventually is about Jesus and about the communion table, and this is where it is in, in part, right? That, was, that sacrificial system was pointing forward to the final sacrifice, to Jesus, God's provision for his people. Not a stone altar, but an altar of a cross on which God communicates to his people forgiveness of sin, atonement, embrace, covenant love. There it is. And we now, as the privileged people of God, on this side of the cross, we rest in that provision of God. We rest in that provision of God, and we bring that to our soul. He's given us Christ. What more can he give? And so I read from this last week, but Romans 8 I read last week the passage after this, but just listen to this. If we could bring this to ourselves in distress, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us or what could be against us ultimately? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's already given us the most valuable thing in his son. How will he not also give us all good things? Hold on. Hold on. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. Only God himself, and he's declared you justified, forgiven, free, and restored. That's what he's declared you. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you right now. That's the provision of God, and we rest in that. We look outside ourselves, confess what we do have, a refuge, confess what we don't have, a lot of light and truth, but we need some more rest in what God's provided. Even if we see it through a glass very dimly, oh, this provision, let me bring that to my soul. You remember, he's, he started out by saying, vindicate me, defend my cause, deliver me. And in Jesus, God says, yes, yes, and yes, I have and I will, I am. And then we speak to our soul again. Verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. might be helpful for you to know as you read through these psalms, the word salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word Jesus. And that salvation there, the, the word is Yeshua, the, the, the translation of it is the salvation of my face. Salvation of my face. As you look around or look at me, you might say, your face could use some saving, right? But that's not what this is talking about. The salvation of my face. Hebrew is a very gritty, grungy language, and it's just up close. One, for, for your face to be saved, somebody has to be close enough to see it. That's part of it. But the better part is it, it has to do with removal of shame. The universal picture of someone who's ashamed is this. And you probably, if you're a parent, 
have had an experience where your child has done something where he or she is guilty or exposed or they've been made fun of and been exposed in some way uh, and they, they feel ashamed and they're downcast. Like That's downcast, downcast, looking down. And what do you do? You want them to know that you love them. Well, this is what I've done. Um, take your hand under the chin, say, hey, hey, look at me. I love you. I want you to see my face. I want you to see me looking in your eyes. I want you to know that you do not need to be ashamed with me, that my love is willing to cover over that. I see you. I know you. I love you. That's what the Lord does for us in Jesus. That's the salvation of our face. And also it means, in the the Old Testament, a smile. Of course it means a smile if we embrace that. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, how did the situation, the context change for this psalmist? It didn't. There's not a bow on this psalm. It doesn't wrap up with him being in the temple and praising God and the enemies kicked out or anything. He doesn't end up back in Jerusalem at the end of this psalm. The only thing that's changed is his vision of what of God's provision in Christ or in redemption that we see in Christ. Right? There's not the it's not obvious that he gets relief from the oppression of the enemy. They're probably still saying, as they were in Psalm 42, "Where is your God?" mocking, uh, mocking him. Nothing's changed except him and his vision of his Lord. God sent out his light and his truth, and the psalmist is saying, yes, yes. Sometimes, guys, if you're in distress right now, the situation might not change right away, and it might not change for a very long time. And sometimes we lean into it with the Lord and with community. This is a three-act play, Psalm 42 and 43, with three refrains, you know, 42, 5, 11, and, and again at the end of 43. Where God begins, absent in the psalmist's mind. And then the psalmist says, okay, yeah, he is a source of strength for me. And then he concludes by saying, actually, he is my strength. It's in him. It's not from him. It's in him. This is part of the reason we come to the communion table every single week. That there is relief, strength, mercy, and help in Jesus for God's people. And he says, come and get it. In the communion table, what do we do? Think about what we do. We look outside ourselves. This is bread and wine. It's outside of us, literally. Then it comes into us. In it, we declare what we do have. He is a refuge for us. We, we, we confess what we don't have. We don't have enough light to see that all the time. We need to hold on to it. And this picture is the provision in which we're called to rest. And then we hear the words of institution, and it speaks to our soul all over again. If you're in Christ, the table's open for you, and we say, we want you to come and get it. Taking communion, the New City community is saying, I receive and rest on Jesus alone as he's offered in the gospel, and I want his lordship in my life today. I want it. If that is you, this table is for you. I'll pray and then invite you to get the bread and either white grape juice or red wine and then come back to your seats and we'll all partake together. As we go get it, I'll say go out, go by the curtains to the back. There's two stations on that side and that side. Grab the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seat. Lord Jesus, 
We love you, but more importantly, we're loved by you. And that actually empowers our ability to love you. So help us to lay firmer grasp on the grasp with which you hold us. In your name we pray. And now come to the table. Amen. If you're taking communion today, go ahead and grab your elements and come back to your seats.